Stand up for righteousness. Stand up for justice. Stand up for truth. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things. Not because they are easy, but because they are hard. I truly believe that thoughts are the greatest vehicle to change power and success in the world. Victory at all costs. Victory in spite of all terror. Victory however long and hard the road may be. For without victory there is no survival. To those waiting with bated breath for that favorite media catchphrase, the U-turn, I have only one thing to say. U-turn if you want to. The ladies not for turning. Reserve your right to think, for even to think wrongly is better than not to think at all. There's a quote from Hypatia of Alexandria who is arguably the first female mathematician and was renowned in her own lifetime as a great teacher and a wise counsellor. I thought this was an appropriate quote for our discussion today. As our guest hasn't followed the beaten path, she has taken the road less travelled. She commenced her career as a high school maths teacher and against the thinking of the day, embarked on a new career as a business executive, director and now chairman of a bank. Our guest today is Judith Downs, chair of Bank Australia a non-exec director of Cleantech Holdings Limited, Impedimed Limited, and the Spinal Research Institute. Hello and welcome to another episode of No Limitations, a show where we speak to elite world-class performing men and women and unlock the secrets and influences that have shaped their destinies and that you could apply to your own life. I'm your host, Greg Robinson, managing partner of Blendham Partners, the number one research-led executive search and board advisory firm. In this episode, Judith shares with us her unique story, a story of courage and character, and the willingness to take some risk in life. She challenges us to think independently and not necessarily to conform with the masses. She presents some differing and alternate perspectives in regards to the boardroom. She questions remuneration structures, the concept of bonuses, and brings to our attention a new era of banking and choice. We discuss social responsibility, the need for purpose, and what is clean money. So sit back and enjoy, never too late. Judith, welcome to the show. Good afternoon, Greg. Judith, I have not had the pleasure of ever interviewing a chair who started their career as a school teacher, especially in mathematics. What is the story behind that? I'd have to say it's probably a little bit of luck and a little bit of being able to change. So yes, I started in mathematics. I taught for five years and at the end of that, I was in charge of year 12 at a reasonably large Melbourne high school. And from there, Judith? I had a couple of boys, delightful children, and I stayed home for eight years. Spending time with children all day made me think that perhaps I wanted to work just with adults. So I did another degree that enabled me to qualify for the professional accounting bodies and then set about looking for a job in accounting. Coopers and Lybrand, wasn't it? It was Coopers and Lybrand. I was lucky. I only wanted to work part-time, and the partner we knew there had just come back from the country and seen that it could be successful to have people working part-time. Was it fashionable then? To work part-time, not at all. I was the only one in the office working part-time. Okay, so how hard an argument is it to get this partner over the line? I'm an ex-school teacher. I've taken time out. I've done some study and I want you to back me as a part-time professional. To be honest, he had talked to me before I started my degree and more or less said, oh, yes, of course, you'll get a job. 
So I guess he felt he had to give me a job. What were the learnings? I think it's worth, if you really want to change careers, having the courage to do that. It's not easy. I was a year 12 coordinator, which is a fairly senior position in a big high school. I started at Coopers and Lybran as somebody who had one year's experience. So the 22-year-olds that had had one year experience just out of university and I at age about, I don't know, 35 or so, were at the same level. So you you do go back and begin again. Ah, uh, that's the trick, is it? Not to be afraid to begin again. Yeah, right, okay. And then what, in a 15-year period or so, you then migrated across to ANZ Bank, haven't you? And you're running large teams. It took a little bit longer than that, I think. So I stayed at Coopers and Lybrand for a while. There's a bit of a story there. I was rung up by a friend who was a professor in Perth. He said, one of my colleagues is coming across to the university to lecture on this strange new method for pricing financial options called the Black Skulls model. He said, you should go to the lectures. So I went to the Coopers and Lybrand partner and said, would you like me to go to these lectures? And they said, oh, what earthly use would that be? So I thought it might be time to leave and find something else in the accounting world. Look, and just, just winding back, was mum and dad from the profession or well-educated? Mum a school teacher, dad a school teacher? What, what, mum, makes, what encouraged you down this path? Uh, mum was a school teacher. My father was a public sector engineer. So my husband's a dermatologist. So I actually didn't amongst really amongst our friends or my parents' friends know anyone who'd worked in big businesses. All right. So you make the big leap to big business. Why ANZ? I really enjoyed the development of accounting standards. So after Coopers and Lybrand, I went to CPA Australia, initially in a role with their education program, and then in a role implementing their quality review program and working on the development of accounting standards. And it was that development of accounting standards and how you portray the real transactions in the simple language of profit and loss and balance sheet that I really enjoyed. ANZ were looking for somebody in their policy department, which is the department that works on the impact of new accounting standards on the bank and its transactions. And I was fortunate to get the job. Where did that take you? Into a wonderful 12 years at ANZ, increasingly more senior as I became responsible for more areas in the central finance department and then into the institutional business where I was the CFO and the COO. You part-time during this period? No, I was part-time at Coopers and Lybrand and CPA Australia. At ANZ, I was full-time. A couple of points to make there, though. I introduced part-time working to the staff at ANZ. It was, to my mind, non-negotiable if somebody wanted to work part-time. You said yes, and then you looked at their job and you worked out what parts of their job could be moved to someone else. In a big organisation, you need to be fluid. The requirements on a central finance department change frequently, certainly monthly, if not daily. So people had to get used to picking up jobs, some jobs no longer being needed, and that is the way you accommodate part-time staff. So I had the first part-timer in the finance staff, and when I left the finance department, we had 10% working part-time, men and women. You're really the inspiration in that regard. Well, I know it can be done. And it, it's good for you as the boss too because if you can't know you're going to be very busy, you can say to the part-time staff, do you think you could do a few extra days in a month or two? And generally they can if you give them a bit of warning. 
And is it still an acceptable part of the, you know, was it a big argument to take this on, Judith, or was it, yep, you can be, you can be the first one to lead? What was the, the culture? Didn't argue with anyone. I just did it. So, Judith, you just did it because, what, you are asked to do it by someone, or what was the... What prompted it, Judith, when someone just walked up to you and said, look, I've got a situation? No, one of my good female staff was pregnant and I said, are you planning to coming back after you've had your baby? And she said, no, I want to work part-time. So I looked at her and said, Fiona, why wouldn't you come back part-time? And her response was, well, but nobody does. So she did come back part-time and she stayed at ANZ for a very long time. And the success then? Yes, it was successful. Okay. Others follow? It's not something I really spent time looking at. Okay. So what what drove you, Judith? To do part-time or generally? No, just in general. Like you said, it's uh, you're into the brave new world of banking. I enjoyed it. The enormous variety in banking, which people looking at it from the outside don't appreciate. Lots of different activities that I was privileged to do. Lots of opportunity for change. Um, great people to work with. I had the opportunity to work both on the Australian Accounting Standards Board and then internationally on the Standards Advisory Committee of the International Accounting Standards Board. Just met great people all the way around the world and doing really interesting work. Has much changed in banking since those those good days in the yesteryear? I think it's still a very good place to be. There are constant changes in banking, particularly in the distribution and the way people want to interact with their bank. Increasingly, of course, as you all know, there's less and less personal interaction and more just doing it um, over the internet, including you can do the 100-point check, identify yourself over the internet, and you can then also take out a mortgage over the internet without actually face-to-face seeing a banker if you want to. So from that point of view, there is a lot of change. In other aspects, it's still the same story of there are deposits and there are loans and you need to have capital to support it. Okay. During your career at ANZ, you obviously become relatively successful and you move up the pecking order. You had a large team. How do you, how did you lead? By involving people in what was going on, making sure they had the opportunity to ask questions and really making sure they were much better at what they were doing than I would ever have been. So try and employ experts in, the, in all areas and then you can leave them to get on with it. When I first employed people, I would be reasonably uh, careful in watching them for the first three to six months to make sure they really were competent, but then I'd very much leave them to do their job. Okay. You touched on customs a little bit earlier. Has, has there been a shift in loyalty in the last few years? It's a hard question to answer. We hear a lot of negative press about banks after the Banking Royal Commission, yep. but many people will say, but my bank and my banker I trust. And I think that is fundamental. Banks have to be trustworthy or they can't function. They're very highly leveraged institutions, so they do need to be trustworthy despite all the press. And what do you see as the key learnings from the Royal Commission? I think we all acknowledge that mistakes happen. And in big organisations, of course, mistakes happen. But the important thing is to find out about them and fix them as quickly as you can. And I think that's probably a lesson that it's, it's easy to forget because you do know mistakes happen and you forget perhaps the importance of fixing them as quickly as you can. And you're now chair of Bank Australia? Yes. What is that? Bank Australia is a mutual bank. Now that means that every customer has one share and one vote 
in the bank. So we run the bank, we operate for the benefit of our customers who are our shareholders. We don't pay a dividend. Our profits go back into making the bank better for the benefit of our customers. So what do you mean by the word better there, Judith? Okay. To stay in business, we have to offer rates that are more attractive to customers and we have to give better service. We're not as well known as the big banks. So that's our stay in service. Better rates on either the mortgage side or the deposit side and better service. But what we offer that's a little bit different as Bank Australia is that our customers know how their money is being used and where we're invested. We put a very strong emphasis on being transparent to our customers that we, for example, don't invest in fossil fuels, that we qualify for the usual things that are regarded as responsible investing, such as you know, no, no armaments, no tobacco, no live export investing. Okay. It's what we call clean money. And a lot of our customers nowadays are attracted to us because of the values that we stand for. The conservation reserve we own, that, that sort of slight difference in the way we do banking. Well, clean money means there, are, and we have a policy on what we don't invest in and where we do invest. So we do invest in our impact finance business, which is a business that helps, for example, a, a disability community build specialist housing Right. For the members of the community, we will fund something like that. Right, okay. We own a conservation reserve of just short of a thousand hectares in Western Victoria, which we are rehabilitating. We don't invest in fossil fuels. The bonds that we issue qualify under the responsible investing uh, mantra. So it, it is a bank that is more focused on people, planet, then profit, rather than the profit requirement to fund the dividend of shareholders. And is that the meaning behind the mantra that Bank Australia needs? It is the meaning behind the Bank Australia needs. There is an inherent conflict between shareholders and customers when your shareholders want a profit. When they're the same group, you're operating for the benefit of both groups. Okay. They're the same people. So someone sitting here, if I wanted to go to your bank, you're saying I can get a better deposit rate? We won't always be absolutely the best in the market, but we always try and give our customers very competitive deposit rates. And we have a lot of customers who rely on their income from deposits. Yeah. So we, we don't aim to be absolutely the best in the market. That would be impossible because there are so many both banks and non-bank alternatives, but we aim to always have good rates on both sides of the ledger, deposit and mortgage. And is there any other reason I'd, come, I'd pull my money out of one of the four pillars? You might like our clean money. So this is an institution with a real purpose. It has a very real purpose. So what's the culture like when I walk into to one of your banks? I think the first thing you'll find is that you are greeted pretty immediately and served pretty immediately. So I know I've gone into branches where they don't know who I am and I'm greeted and served by people who will say, come up here, we'll look after you, even if they don't know who I am. So that's the first thing. Mm-hmm. Second thing I hope and this wouldn't be so apparent to a customer, is that our staff are very collaborative. We don't pay bonuses, which also sets us apart. Okay. We do give our um, uh, level one staff a, a small incentive if they meet some targets which are unrelated to sales. But for all our execs and our managers and our senior people, there is no bonus. And that means they're not competing against each other. There's no withholding. They work together and they are happy to actually 
help each other by criticising if need be because it's not impacting the bonus of the person they're criticising. Are you with me? Yeah, I am. Mm. And what about the other big play in the market in banking is all around technology. Mm. And as a consumer out there, I'm told how good certain banks are and how they lead the way in technology. Does it really come to play with a boutique like yourselves? It's important that we a reasonably fast follower in technology. So that's part of operating the bank for the benefit of the customers. So our customers want to use Oscar, the new payments platform. They wanted to use Apple Pay. They want to use um, Android Pay. They want to use the internet. Uh, so yes, it is important that we do those. We don't expect to be first in the market. Although I would say I think we were first in the market with Pexus, the, the new online mortgage system. Okay. One of our staff members was very involved in developing that and I'm told that we, we issued the first one. Is that right? Yeah. So just occasionally we might be first but that would be pretty unusual. But we do need to keep up with the, the mainstream. Where do you see banking going? There's all the discussion around fintechs and you know, if you look at Australia, it's a pretty simple philosophy. It's in deposits and it's, you know, it's housing loans. So therefore, it's obviously very, very competitive. But if there's going to be mergers one day of the banks and potentially offshore banks coming in, how is your organisation going to survive? I think we'll survive because we're doing something different and offering something different. There have been um, overseas banks in the Australian market since I joined ANZ, you know, 15, 20, it just varies from year to year. So that's not an issue. I think we will see more startups. And I oh, think, you believe so, do you? Oh, yes, I think so. Uh, we're seeing them already in the technology space. But they, they will take a while to have an impact. The mutuals will always be there. Credit cooperatives and mutual banks are a much larger part of the banking system in some of the European countries. And there's no reason why over time the mutuals can't grow to be 10, 10%, 15% of the banking system. We're not there at the moment, but I'd like to see us get there. Okay. What about this other thing called crypto? And how, what's the impact you think that's going to have in this country? Oh, I don't think it'll have much impact. Why do, you, why do you say that? Certainly what I've seen so far of Bitcoin and the other currencies like that mm. are more a promise and more suitable perhaps to people who like to gamble on what's going on. You only have to look at the energy use for Bitcoin itself and realise that it's just out of all proportion. The technology underlying that, the distributed ledger, is something that I think does have application. But I think at the, and I, I do know that some of the reserve banks are considering whether they should issue a cryptocurrency. I think we're quite a long way from that. I could be proven wrong. Judith, I've got my deposit in one of these major banks. How hard is it for me to take my accounts over to your bank? Do I really want to go through the pain? Well, Greg, it's not that hard. Wander into the bank with your license and they'll do the 100 point check for you, license and a few other bits and pieces. Then you'll have an account and then you can just hop on the internet. They'll show you how to use the internet if you're not too good at it. <laughs> I'm not too good, no. <laughs> and you can just move your money across. That'll be fine. So it's not that difficult after all? That's not difficult. The difficult thing for people is if they've got lots of automatic payments coming out of yeah, their right. accounts and that's where it gets tricky. Now, open banking will help to overcome that. Open banking should really be called customer-owned data because it's all about the customer owning the data and being able to say to their bank, I want you to let this other organisation, which might be a, a fintech or another bank, access all my banking details so somebody else can help me with that transition so that all my automatic payments are now coming from someone else 
or some fintech can analyse how much I've spent at the grocers and how much I've spent at the bookshop and the petrol station from my banking statement. At the moment, banks have that data. Mm -hmm. Open banking gives you control of that data. Now, that's due to come in for the big banks. They're meant to um, be able to implement that during this year and the mutuals a year or so later. That's looking pretty positive then for you. It hasn't had much of an impact in the UK where it has been in for a few years. So perhaps it'll be more positive here. Okay. We'll see. Cyber. Mm. How often, what's your tax like? Oh, constant. Constant. Uh, Frequent. So, yes. Am I safe in a small bank then? Yes. We are bound by the same standards from the regulators as the big banks. All right. And that includes their standard on cybersecurity. We are audited by the same firms, uh, both for audit and for penetration testing. So yes. Okay. And your model is it is it more to be is it more a physical bricks and mortar, or is it going to go down the route of being more online? It's a combination. There's always going to be a place for branches, not as many branches as have been in the past because people don't use them. Okay. So it'll be a combination. Okay. Jude, let's just take a step sideways for a second. I also forgot you are a chair which means you build a career in boards. How did you make the transition from being an exec, as you say, a number of years back, to making the move into boards? And, and why did you want to make the move into boards? I had been on a board when I was at ANZ. I was on the board of ING Australia. When I was at Illumina in mining, I was on the board of Alcoa of Australia. Okay. So I had some experience in boards. I was approached by Bank Australia to join their board, and I, I wasn't certain. I wasn't certain whether to go into boards or go back into full-time work. I went through the interview process with them and they finally rang me up and said, you really have to decide today. So I said, okay. <laughs> and that's, that's how I started. But why did you go? Why did you actually start thinking about boards? I suppose because the opportunity was there. I had gone for a couple of full-time jobs that didn't come off mm-hmm. and I just enjoyed, decided, okay, well, I'll Here's another board coming along. I'll just stay with boards. Okay. And talk us through your, your selection criteria. Most important thing I've learned is that you have to be confident you have something to add to the board. I frequently hear people say, this board would be really good for me. Wrong way round. Absolutely wrong way round. Uh, I get calls about boards that I don't progress beyond the call because I don't think they're right for me. Um, It's not a matter just of taking any old board that comes along. In fact, when I left Illumina or ANZ, I was asked to go on a board that automatically said, no, absolutely not. It was a board where I felt incompatible with what they did. Okay. And therefore you need to say no. But really the most important thing is to be confident you can add something to that board. And what are your thoughts around this whole discussion on diversity in the boardroom? Diversity needs to mean a lot more than just putting men and women on. It needs to be getting the right skill mix, getting a, a mix of people that understand the business you're in and the customers you're servicing. We do tend still to be pretty monochromatic on boards in Australia, people with similar backgrounds. We've, we're broadened now to include more women. It's not, not particularly balanced, but we are getting somewhere there. We don't particularly have good representation from Indigenous people 
We don't have fantastic representation from people in the country, from people who are more recent immigrants to Australia. So there's from disabled people. There's lots of groups in society who I think would feel quite marginalised from the world of boards and board directors. So what do you think has been done about it? It's really up to the individuals on each board to make sure that they are being open-minded about what's the best representation for their board and their company or their business or their not-for-profit. I don't know that setting particular targets or rules or anything gets you there. So you're not a huge fan of that? No. Judith, at what point in your exequary is it the appropriate time to make the transition or consider the transition to the boardroom? When you think you've got the most senior position you can possibly get in your exec career. I get a lot of women in their late 40s, early 50s that think it might be nice to go on a board. That's fine. They should expect that the board they go on is no more senior or bigger than the boards they have been advising. In fact, they should expect it's more junior. So you can't expect to go on to a major listed company board, I don't think, unless you've been a CEO of a big organisation or a leader in one of the big law firms, the big accounting firms in the government, really top of the profession. And unfortunately, some people think, well, I'm sort of stagnating a bit in the middle management, early senior ranks, I'll go and be a director. That'll be much more important. It won't. You will be on small boards. You will not find the satisfaction. So I always say to women, go as far as you can in the executive ranks. And it could be, you know, it could be an age thing. You might get to an age where people are not going to put you into a senior executive job. It could be your own feeling how long you've worked, how enthusiastic you are. Lots of reasons that you think, no, I'm not going to get that next promotion to in the, within the executive ranks. That's the time to go. And in today's society, do you think the boards are open to too much scrutiny? No. The accountability stops with the board. The board should be able to answer questions about what they're doing. So from a CFO's perspective and other executives' perspective, what do you think they're wanting from the board? I think they're wanting good hearing. I think the CEO and the CFO or any of the execs want the board to listen. I think they want the board to probe. I think they want the board to add value and think of things they perhaps haven't thought of. And then I think they want clarity on what they're delegated to do and what they can do without consulting the board and where that delegation ends. And you're not getting the pressures from external to almost overstep the mark? There's arguments at the moment that boards are coming too close to the execs? I'm not seeing changes in the standards. There might be the standards, but I'm talking about... The reality? Yes. Look, accountability stops with the board Mm. and more specifically with the board chair. So it's up to me and to other members of the board to know enough to discharge that accountability without stopping the CEO and the execs doing their job. So it, it is a balancing act. It's something you constantly think about. Have I done enough to know enough? Am I asking too much? Am I asking so much because I don't trust? In that case, you have a problem that needs to be fixed because you do have to have trust. You cannot be in the business every day seeing what everyone is doing. So those are the things that you ask yourself constantly. And as a chair, how do you manage the relationship with the CEO? Are you the, are you a coach or what, what's your style? I try and listen to the CEO 
and I'm occasionally, very, very occasionally, will say to the CEO, that's not going to happen. I think in eight years, happened twice. Okay. Very occasionally, and it has been accepted. My style is to be very open with the CEO, have a very frank discussion about what's going well and what's not, to encourage him to be frank in turn. So if something's gone wrong in a board meeting, I will tell him or he will tell me, we'll think about how to fix it. So a very open, very transparent, encouraging him sometimes to move out of the comfort zone, Mm -hmm. try some new things, throwing ideas up and accepting when they come back with a good reason why we're not going to do that. So again, it's a little bit of strategic thinking, but not strategically dominating or demanding. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. You know, so your, your, your job is to help the thinking. It's not to say it's my way or the highway. Okay. And what about the whole question around risk adversity? Well, we all have to take risk or we won't get anywhere in business. It's a question of understanding what the limits are to the extent possible being able to measure the risk you're taking and know when that measurement is trending towards the limit and then changing your activity or stopping it. Okay. Let me ask you another question. You get approached, I'm sure, regularly regarding board opportunities. When do you say yes and when do you say no? And there's one. There's a reason I'm asking this because in some cases, I'll, well, I'm interested in your perspectives of when it's appropriate for expertise in a particular background on a board and does that roll into appropriateness for the chair as well? Over the years, I've developed a sort of feeling myself, which won't apply to all of people, but I, as, as a chair and as somebody who's been asked to consider chair in industries I haven't worked in, I've decided I'm not comfortable personally chairing unless I've worked in the industry. Yeah, okay. I am comfortable being on the board if I'm in a position where the board wants somebody with financial expertise, banking expertise, and I feel that I can add that in that particular industry. So it's it's a personal decision that each person has to make as to whether they think they can appropriately discharge the accountability of both the board and the chair. Okay, so I'm not just going to take on that first gig because it's coming my way and I might miss out on next as a, as a result. No, you're not. You're going to wait until one comes along that you think, yeah, that makes sense with what I've done before and what I can bring to that company. Okay. What other boards are you on? I'm on a medical technology board and I'm on a uh, board which is mining technology and water purification. So what are you learning? I'm learning a lot about medical technology (laughs) and I'm learning a lot of chemistry from the other board because water purification and the method we use for extracting the minerals, or we will use, we're not doing it yet, but the method we will use for extracting nickel and cobalt from the ore relies very heavily on chemistry. The nickel and cobalt, of course, are the chemicals that are required for cars for electric battery. Are those skills transferable? It's not transferable to every industry. I think my, my skills in accounting and finance and banking and general governance are transferable to quite a few boards and quite a few situations, but not necessarily every. The other big question out there is personal reputation, Judith. Are you seeing it in the boardroom that people aren't being, you know, you said earlier, taking risks because you're in business, holding back on making the calls? No, not really. I, I think it's uh, most people on boards understand that their reputation is on the line with the reputation of the company and they don't stay on the board unless they're, they're happy with that. Okay. 
What do you look for in a CEO? What is leadership? I look for somebody who listens. It's the CEO. They've got to be able to listen to the board and to their staff. I look for somebody who employs great people and gives them responsibility. CEO is not meant to be the founder of all knowledge. They're not meant to be better than everyone that works for them. They're meant to employ really great people. I look for somebody who's got a very good knowledge of the company, a very good knowledge and understanding. So how do you test it? Watch how they interact with people. Watch how they respond to a crisis. Consider how they listen to suggestions for improvement or change. Talk to the customers. Talk to other staff. You, you get information on somebody like the CEO from internal and external sources constantly. The role of the chair and the role of the board is to do two big things. Well, there's many things, but two important things is one to a point and one is to let go, if need be, the CEO. Obviously, we see enough of the appointments. There are certain CEOs without naming names, you'd argue we could be struggling. Do you think boards should be swifter in making decisions and letting CEOs go? It's terribly easy to judge from the outside what a board has done. I think providing you have a good, competent board, they will always make the best decision they can for the company. Business is changing somewhat. It's not all about return to the to the shareholder. It's about social responsibility. Where are you seeing that really to start to make its play? Okay, I look at proxies. I look at the super funds being very influential. What what are you seeing, Judith? I think I'm seeing a greater awareness amongst uh, the media and the various forms of, I include the various forms of, uh, you know, Twitter, Facebook, etc., the social media in that, of the impact that businesses have on life. So it's no longer enough to say, oh, well, look, that's a company over there and it does makes widgets or something. People say, well, actually, it makes widgets, but there's also an awful lot of contaminated soil comes out of that company or a lot of carbon emissions or actually... It might be doing some things in a country offshore that we don't really think is the right way to treat people. So I think we're all a lot more aware of what's going on around us perhaps than when I was younger. Does the impact of social media worry you at all? It does sometimes because I think at times social media just gets hold of one narrow way of looking at an issue and a lot of these issues are very nuanced and very complex. And they can do enormous damage both to individuals and to companies in a very short space of time without people really understanding the issue that they're they're confronting. So it's a mixed blessing. I think social media and the speed with which we operate has sometimes increased our understanding of the impact that companies have and people have, but it can be a mixed blessing when the story is not told fully. Okay. And the impact of proxy advisors? I think they're important. Not all shareholders have time to review all the companies that they're invested in. And the proxy advisors generally take a pretty independent view. They don't even agree amongst themselves quite often. That doesn't mean I always agree with what proxy advisors say about the companies I'm involved in. But it is an independent view of the company that investors and interested parties can use if they want to. Okay. And what about the thoughts on remuneration that comes up all the time? Are we paying too much, too little? 
should we listen to what the, the proxies say? What, what are your thoughts in that regard? I think we've let the debate get a little bit out of control in that I, having worked both with the situation where there were bonuses and having been the recipient of bonuses and now working in an organisation that doesn't pay bonuses, yeah, it is far more productive work without the bonuses. So I've been at the pointy end as the finance person of people who want the results of a business perhaps just rounded in a slightly different way for a reason. And I've seen that people don't like to necessarily help their peer because they know darn well that the board's going to set a bonus pool of a fixed amount and it's got to be divided up. And therefore, if she gets more, I get less. So that, that does absolutely tend to reduce the collaboration. The second impact I think it has is you don't get bad news percolating up so quickly in a bonus situation yeah, because right. people think I, I can probably fix this and I don't it won't appear on my review and affect my bonus and sometimes they can't fix it and it gets a bit out of control so I, I, I don't want to go into the debate of how much remuneration because that's no, that's uh, fair enough, yeah. you know as long as a piece of string yeah. but I, I have always been quite uh, I guess vocal on saying that I think the bonus system is probably a little bit out of control and I, I actually think people like to do well in their job and that saying they'll only work well if they get a bonus is probably wrong. Judith, where is the Australian economy? Look, I think it's in a reasonable spot actually, Greg. I think unemployment sitting around 5, 5.1 is, is not bad. Yes. And, I, you know, apologies to anyone who's unemployed and struggling to find a job because I know from that perspective it's, it's terrible. But I have, of course, seen it much worse. I think interest rates at this very low level are fueling the increase in house prices, which does worry me. I think of house prices in terms of the average household income and the multiple is just too high at the moment mm. for people. So I, I, I would be very uncomfortable seeing interest rates uh, going even lower. Even a small amount does have an impact. And, of course, I come from the era of mortgages paying mortgages of 17 and 18 percent yeah exactly you know so i think we're actually in a in a pretty good spot at the moment there doesn't seem to be a clear policy direction of what we're going to try and do to improve living for the people of australia i'm not getting a clear view from the politicians as to what their vision of the future is so it's a bit hard to know whether you agree or disagree with them. <laughs> Do you think there's enough interaction between Australian corporate and the government or governments? That is a pretty fair, that's a pretty fair mm, point mm. you've just put forward there. We see most of the interaction being played out in the press, which is not really a great place to see it. We also see it uh, when there are parliamentary hearings, but they tend to be fairly in, um inquisitorial in nature as opposed to collaborative and productive. So it's a bit hard to know what's going on behind closed doors as such because everyone seems to want to have a grandstand and say the government should be doing this or the government wants to grandstand and say we are doing this and you should be doing that. But we're not. you, you don't get a sense that there's a very strong policy direction guiding parties at the moment. And do you have a view on tax? Oh, you, you, you need, we need, of course, to pay tax. I think my view is more along the lines of we talk a lot about freedom. We all actually give up a lot of freedom for, for the good 
of ourselves. So we, we, we pay taxes and we give up freedom so that we have laws, so that we have a water supply, so that we have electricity. We're actually given up an enormous amount of freedom just so that we can function as a society. And to the extent that tax is needed to keep that happening, I would just say, well, of course we have to pay tax. It will always change the percentage of that is taken as tax and the amount that government does and doesn't do. This is a state of flux. But again, I'm not seeing that there's a clear policy direction yeah. in Australia saying the government should do more or the government should do less, we should privatise more. It, it just seems to be where we're just muddling along a little bit. Going back to the role as chair of a, of a bank, which is very much focused on sustainability, the environment as well, Judith. The environment um, is a big issue. W- again, interaction philosophy there or lack of policy, I guess, is another sort of heading we could talk about, isn't it? It, it is a policy. There absolutely, I believe, has to be a transition away from fossil fuels and the extent of carbon emissions. Obviously, it's not going to happen overnight. We need to replace our fuel sources. At Bank Australia, we are now 100% clean energy, green energy as a, for our electricity, and we support various initiatives that also help businesses uh, through their local councils um, upgrade their buildings so that they're more environmentally efficient. So we're very committed to being part of that transition. We are a small bank, so we need all the banks and all the businesses to believe this and and to act on it. And it also needs leadership, more leadership from the government. Okay. You travel a bit in your role? I do. What are you seeing in different parts of the world? Bank Australia belongs to an organisation called the Global Alliance for Banking on Values. You can't join that unless you meet criteria, which essentially is summed up by saying people before profit or people planet profit in that order. So I've been privileged to travel for meetings of that organisation both in Europe, North America, in Peru and in uh, Nepal, which gives you a very broad view of what's going on. The honesty of some places in the problems that they deal with uh, from some of the public lectures we have, the honesty of people in certain areas talking about how development is handicapped by corruption is is really admirable but makes you understand how important the honesty and transparency of the political process is if a country is going to develop. I, I think as far as sustainability and the move away to a, a less fossil-dependent economy, Europe, England, the European countries are far more advanced than we are. You only have to fly over North Sea and see all the windmills from your plane 35,000 feet up. But I read the Financial Times most days. I read The Economist. I read several other newspapers in Australia. And it's pretty clear to me that we are a long way behind. So, for example, the, the Millennium Sustainability Goals feature far more overseas when I'm in Europe than they do in Australia. You know, these these have been around for a lot longer than Australia seems to have woken up from. So I hear about these things when I'm overseas or when I'm reading the Financial Times or The Economist far more than I do from the Australian press. So why aren't we pushing it harder, do you think? It, it sounds funny in this day and age when we all travel so much, but we are a little bit isolated. Mm. You know, we're still a little bit in our own bubble here in Australia. In Europe, they're far more dependent on each other. They're much more crowded, so they're much more aware of the impact they're having on the environment and themselves, I think, in a very simplistic way. Um, But they're they're just far more attuned to uh, 
sustainability and the problems that the earth faces, the finiteness of the earth's resources, than we seem to be here in Australia. Okay. Looking back at young Judith, teaching at school, and of all the wisdom of life since then, what advice would you give her now? Continue always to put the family first. And that doesn't mean lip service. That means making career decisions that do that. It's a great line, Judith. On that note, Judith, thanks very much for joining us today. A pleasure. You've been listening to No Limitations. <laughs>